Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome back to the Daily Dove Differently. This is David Wise back with you, bringing you Yoma Kafbet, Yoma page 22 from Hollis Hills, Queens, where I serve as rabbi. Today we begin the second chapter of Yoma, Perak Barishona, at first. Before we begin, think for a moment about your Jewish community, your shul or your minyan. What roles and responsibilities do people compete for? Are there some roles that in order to fill it's like pulling teeth? As you gauge the degree of volunteer competitiveness in your community, let's look at the Mishnah that launches us into this chapter. We learn about priestly excitement to engage in the task of trumatadeshen, the sweeping of the ashes off the altar after the burning of the sacrifices, the Kohanim's custodial broom squad, if you will. At first, says the Mishnah, they took volunteers, but when there were lots of them, and amazingly, this became a much sought-after responsibility, (coughs) and the Kohanim began to race up the ramp to the altar, trying to get there first. The Mishnah says that the task was awarded first come, first serves, and even gives a tie-breaking procedure involving the raising of fingers. Later in the chapter, the Gemara will explain the meaning of these fingers. But then we learn... Once two Kohanim were in a dead heat, sprinting up the ramp, and one pushed the other, the latter falling and breaking his leg. It's only fun until someone gets hurt, right? So the Beit Din made a takana, a decree meant to fix something broken. That's the system, not the poor Kohen's leg. And the takana was to award the job of Trumat Hadeshen Befais by lottery. That's our very entertaining Mishnah. The very first question the Gemara asks is, knew if they knew how popular Trumat Hadeshin would be, why not establish the lottery from the outset? The answer was that since it was a nighttime job, the Kohanim wouldn't be knocking each other over literally or figuratively to do it. But once they saw that they were knocking each other over, out came the Takana. The Gemara then argues that the Takana wasn't to decrease the number of volunteers, but to increase it by attaching plum jobs to Trumat Hadeshen, such as setting up the wood on the altar for the next day's offerings. Ravashi says there were in fact two Takanot. The first was the introduction of the lottery to eliminate the danger born of competition. The second came after Kaanim would 
blow off their lottery assignments. And that was the sweetening of the pot with other perks. Apparently, being a Kohane wasn't all glory and gifts. It was a government job, and not everyone born into it was so motivated to do it. Before delving further into the finger game the Kohanim had to play if there was a tie, the Gemara asks why the supervisors didn't just count the Kohanim instead of their fingers. And this leads to a longer discussion about counting Jews. The Gemara says, Kol hamonet Yisrael over belav. Whoever counts the Jews violates a negative commandment. Asur limnotet Yisrael afilu lidvar mitzvah. It is forbidden to count the Jewish people even for the sake of a mitzvah. The proof text that the Gemara accepts to support this claim comes from the first book of Samuel, when King Saul counts his troops in preparation to battle Amalek Batilaim by lambs. It's explained that he gives each soldier a lamb to present for the military census instead of doing a human head count. The Gemara then brings a verse from the prophet Hosea, which seems to say two contradictory things. One, that Israel is as numerous as the sand by the sea. And two, that Israel can never be measured or counted. So which is it? The Gemara responds, Lakashia, there's no problem here. When worthy, Israel can be, cannot be counted. When unworthy, they are of a finite number though the sand by the sea makes for a pretty big, finite number. Having mentioned King Saul, the attention of the rest of Amud Bet turns to Israel's first king, a tortured Saul if there ever was one. First, it notes how Shaul protested God's command to wipe out Amalek. If, for one corpse, the Torah commands us to bring the neck of a young heifer and declare that our hands are clean, Saul says, what about for all the people we will turn into corpses? And if the people aren't innocent, what crime did the animals commit? And if the adults sinned, what did the children do to to deserve extermination? Saul raises some serious moral questions, at which point a batkol, a heavenly voice, calls out and says, Al tehid sadiq harbei, don't be too righteous. And, says the Gemara, by the way, when Saul would later give his emissary Doeg instructions to slaughter the Kohanim, another heavenly voice admonished him, Al-Tirshahar Bey, don't be so wicked. The Gemara is trying to show that Shaul was never on the same page as heaven, whether he was acting on instructions or of his own initiative. Of course, it's troubling to see the Gemara fault Saul for raising a moral challenge to a divine command. After all, we applaud Avraham for doing just this on behalf of Sodom. But maybe Amalek is so evil, it creates its own category of morality. As my favorite thinker on the subject of the modern state of Israel, Yossi Klein Halevi, likes to say, Israel's contemporary reality should be framed by two biblical commands. Remember that you were a stranger in the land of Egypt, and remember what Amalek did to you on your way out of Egypt. Or even more simply put, on one hand, don't be cruel, 
on the other, don't be naive, was the Batkol telling Shaul that in spite of his inclination to fulfill the first, he shouldn't forget the second? Don't be naive. The Gemara, though, can't end its discussion of King Saul with only condemnation. He was, after all, God's choice to rule over Israel. So it analyzes the verse, Ben Shana Shaul Bemolcho, which likely means one year into Saul's monarchy. But Rav Huna takes Ben Shana to mean something more literal, what it usually means, one year old. What does it mean to refer to King Saul as a one-year-old? Rav Huna said, Keven Shana Shalotam Tamchet. Like a one-year-old who wasn't sullied by the taste of sin. Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak challenges Rav Huna, apparently recalling what it was like to change a toddler's diaper. And he says, Ve'ema Keven Shana Shemeluchlach Betit Uvtsoa. Maybe we sh- it means he was as filthy as a one-year-old covered in mud and excrement. And then Rav Nachman went on to have some pretty freaky dreams, which he took to be a punishment. He returned and said, Na'aneti lachem atzmot Shaul ben Kish. I am answering to you, bones of Saul ben Kish. And then he had more bad dreams. So the next day he announced, Na'aneti lachem atzmot Shaul ben Kish, melech Yisrael. I am answering to you, bones of Saul ben Kish, king of Israel. The Gemara seems to be saying, Saul may have been a troubled king, but a king is still a king. And finally, the Gemara tries to explain why Saul lost his crown. Its most poignant answer is because he waived his honor. Though the verse isn't quoted, we're reminded of Samuel's words to Saul after the battle with Amalek, when Shaul fell short of God's demands. Im You may be small in your own eyes, but you are in fact the head of the tribes of Israel. When a leader is too humble to recognize the impact of his or her power, and to recognize the reality that others need him or her to act on that power, that leader is doomed to lose power. That's all for today. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Daily Daf Differently. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead. Available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.